electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Starts right now, live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee. Your traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Steve Grosso, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast Stocks, getting slammed today. But check out this chart. Does Bitcoin hold the key to where stocks are headed next? One of the largest VIX traders says yes, and he'll break down what it means for your money. Plus, drama at Disney, two of its biggest hits, Roseanne and Star Wars, both weighing on the stock today and not even mentioning the ongoing problems at ESPN. So why are some of the traders still bullish on this name? But first, we start off with today's big sell-off. You hear that dramatic that music? Is <laughs> it is dramatic. Wow, like Italian, Italian turmoil sending shockwaves around the world. The Dow dropping just over 500 points at the lows of the day as Rome burns. <laughs> well, we're Let's being overly there, dramatic there. But fears of another European debt crisis grip stocks here. Traders are buying safety. Check out the collapse of the 10-year yield as traders jump over themselves to buy bonds. That is the biggest jump since Brexit nearly two years ago. So the question is, is this the start of a more prolonged sell-off? And are we seeing the beginning of another serious banking crisis in Europe? Guy. You, all you need, you have the cost, you need Nero there. Yes, so he should fiddling. have Nero with a little fiddle. That would have been, if our crack staff in EC was, uh, it's, month, it's Very Tuesday. Next, Long time. Weekend. Next, Next time. Next time. <laughs> So my concern, listen, Russell basically closed unchanged today. Chip stocks did well today. Obviously, it was this was all in banking, and I'm not going to pretend to be some expert in Italian bonds. I am not, despite my Sicilian-Italian heritage. <laughs> Tim tweeted out a few hours ago. I thought you were going to say I'm Sicilian-Italian, too. Yeah, there you go. All right, well, I'll there, acknowledge it. There have been 90 governments in the last 116 years, so it's, this is not, it's, this, nothing new here. What I will say is this, and something we've said for a while, Deutsche Bank, to me, is ground zero for all of this. I'm not saying it's due to what's going on in Italy, but it's clearly something is amiss there. The question I think you have to ask yourself that I still don't know the answer to is Deutsche Bank a Deutsche Bank-specific problem or is there systemic risk there? My sense is it's the latter, but the market, until today at least, says otherwise. Well, I mean, if you took a look at the trade across the board, banks, Credit Suisse, RBS, I mean, they all were lower on this notion or this fear that perhaps they are holding some of this Italian debt. I mean, 20% of Italian debt out there is owned by the ECB. 37% is owned by foreign investors. Who those foreign investors are, that's a question here. Yeah, but, I mean, if you look at J.P. Morgan, though, which, which had a small bounce at the end of the day, but, I mean, J.P. Morgan closed, you know, basically at or slightly above the 200-day for the first time since September, uh, actually since July of 2016. So, you know, this kind of a move lower for the financials that started a few days back. Mm -hmm. um, ultimately, do, do I think we're going to have a 2011-2012 European sovereign debt crisis? Mm -hmm. The answer is I don't think so. In fact, um, I, I think the, the problem here for markets, though, is that you're going to have to have a confidence vote. This is going to play out in Italy. And in fact, probably the earliest we get an election there is late summer, possibly 2019. So now Italy's hanging over the markets. And, and I think this is something that if you look at the markets and the calculus and you look at the VIX, this was not on but this anybody's could be worse, playbook. But Italy, Italy when you, you, have, you, you have to all become pseudo-experts on this. So when you look at the Italian economy and you overlay it with Greece, it's 10 times the size. Does it have the ability to become a more systemic or a more pervasive problem? Yes. Yeah. 
Well, it I mean, does. I, I, I don't think you have to. I mean, I don't consider myself pseudo anything, Steve. But I mean, bottom line is, I think you it was have, a rhetorical um, question. You I answered know. it. But go ahead. Um, <laughs> look at the European. Look at the European PMIs. Look at the confidence indicators. Look at actually where the European economy is. Italy prints 1.6% GDP last year. It's the best in seven years. The numbers this year are almost as close. The European PMIs for a long time were outpacing the rest of the world. But so Italy's had is, a problem since 99. I, I understand that. But this is happening not in 2009 when European unemployment levels were at, at, at record highs and when you actually had these ma magic magic budget deficits. You have a dynamic here where I actually think things aren't that bad there. And by the way, banks are also in better shape even Much in Europe shape. than back then. But we're looking at two separate issues here. I mean, we're looking at the European banks and what their exposure might be in terms of the holdings. But as for the U.S. banks, the holdings are nil. I mean, what we're talking about here is we had J.P. Morgan as well as Morgan Stanley at a Deutsche Bank conference today talking about second quarter revenues, trading revenues being flat, right? And then we're also looking at a very, very flat yield curve partly because of what is going on in Italy. Mm -hmm. So how do I mean how do you trade the financials here because supposedly we had all these wins at the financials backs in terms of deregulation, a better economy and a steepening yield curve and we don't have that yield curve. The global synchronized growth story is in question at this point. Right? Does that what change you your view? Yeah. Does it change my view? Well, today for me I own a lot of banks. It was a very very painful day. Um, I don't think these bank crises tend to be one or two day things. So I think there'll probably be a little bit of follow through. But I think some of these are just way, way, way overdone. If you look at, you know, so for example, Bank America, which really is the most insulated in terms of not having global exposure, you know, down, I don't know, 4%, 3%, today. That seems to be kind of overdone. JP Moore, I mean, just, it was just when things start trading down in integers, you know, that's always to me a telling sign of people just puking them out no matter what. And if I think about where the Italian bonds are, we were talking about this a little bit before the show, at 3, 18, 17, I don't know exactly where they closed. Had I only known that and not known any of the run up to this Italian bond crisis and only known that if we were, they were at 316 and we were at, as of last week, three, let's call it. That wouldn't seem amiss to me at all. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't seem anything that would be worthy of this kind of bank sell-off. So I know there's momentum in these kind of levered companies, but I, I just think this is overdone. As you said, we are nowhere remotely close to the kind of uh, peril we were in in 2010. But when, you, when you look at when I look at it through the through the prism of where we were in the financial crisis, you look at the XLF, and we were flirting with those same levels. So you talked about uh, a steepening yield curve, deregulation, but that would assume that everything is pulled off and we go back to 30 to 1 leverage if the XLF gets back to those old levels. We pushed off those old levels. Mm -hmm. There were resistance for us. But if I look at the KRE, that doesn't have the same forward, front-facing front headwinds that you're going to see with the XLF. So to the point of really? the the Alpavoa, I the think regional curve? banks. I mean, don't they depend more on the Europe? I, I think they depend more on the the local economies versus the the rise of the of the yield curve on a steepening fashion. I, I think it's time for some sanity here. I don't think anyone here is being insane. I just want to be clear. I mean, from a market's perspective, I mean, look at where uh, the momentum on the ten-year bond is now in the U.S. You're at a, a around a 21 RSI. I bring that up. Don't fall asleep. It means that actually this is so overbought in terms of bonds. We haven't been this overbought since Brexit. And where were we 
we before this? Bonds were the most shortest in U.S. Treasury positions before we went on this run um, on record. So people were so one side of the boat in terms of where they thought rates were going, and now we've adjusted way too far to the other side. I actually think bonds are actually going to. But how do you explain tomorrow. regional banks up nine percent, KRE up nine percent against XLF? That's flat on the year. So there must be something that's amiss. Whether it's the tax policy, but, whether it's corporates, whether it's something, what's the what's I, the? I think there's potential for M&A, which you have in the regionals, right. which you do not have. And I mean, nobody's merging with. They're too big. They're, they're too big, yeah. right? So that is something. We've seen a couple of bank mergers. That's part of it. I'm not sure what the rest. I, I get this the so often in the financials. I get the fear spreading. But tell me about this. Industrials down 1.6 percent in today's session. Materials down 1.8 percent. People yeah. concerned. It's right. a growth so, concern. But should we be concerned? I mean, we've gotten the data points out of Europe that have been rolling over, right? So that's already. They've been question. rolling over, but they and haven't then, collapsed. They haven't collapsed. Nobody's saying that. But then you throw this. You throw an Italian crisis on the burner also. And then what happens to European growth? Well, I think then people. Well, quickly, I think people did not look at valuation a few months ago. Now they're looking at it more close now in terms of all, all these concerns. So we were, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. Now it seems like we're going to shoot first, ask what, <laughs> ask questions. <laughs> like, did, did Nero get, is it? Nero. There's no Nero, yeah. Nero okay. there yet. Not, but anyway, not yet. shoot first, ask questions later. That's what happened today. You've got a couple things coming up that give you a chance to, to actually test some of these theses. I mean, first of all, you have PMIs on June 1st, so a couple days from now, you're actually going to get another fresh level of what the industrial economy is doing in Europe. And in Spain, on Friday, we actually have a confidence vote on the Spanish government. So um, just when you thought it was just about Italy, you actually may start to see this again. I say it again, though. I, I don't think we're anywhere close to where we were in 2011, 2012. I think the ECB is in a very, very uh, established place here, being the buyer of last resort in terms of their assets. And they are not in any way tightening. Well, then uh, I have a question for you, Ambassador, There's before we get to, uh, to more on the financials here. European valuations, are they cheaper than the U.S. for a reason? Yes, but, but I tell you what, at some point you get to this place where valuations become too, too cheap to ignore. We were probably 20% cheap coming into this, and we're probably close to 32, 33% cheap now. I actually think that starts to get interesting. Um, let's go on to the financials here, getting crushed today, as we mentioned. But our next guest says, now is the time to buy. Let's go off the charts huh. with Chris Verona, Strategus Research Partners, to find out why. Hi, Chris. Hey, Melissa. How you doing? And if we want to talk about banks here, I first want to start with the broader market. And what stands out to me, certainly today, not a good day, but when we put the year in context so far, Remember, the original lows here, 25.33, then a higher low, 25.55, a higher low again just a few weeks ago, 2,600. We held the 50-day today uh, at 26.75. So this is a series of higher lows over the last four or five months, and each one, each test has been on lower volume. So the selling pressure has actually been less pronounced, and that was actually the case today. Volume was not that uh, extreme. And when we look at the source of the weakness today, and we go with the banks here, I think what's notable, when you look at the number of stocks making a 20-day low in the bank index, it's actually been getting better. So while today certainly felt painful internally, it wasn't as bad. Only about 10% of the sector made a one-month low. So let's talk about the biggest bellwether uh, in the group here, J.P. Morgan. We think this uptrend is still largely intact. We roughly held the 200 today. There's very good support in the 98 to 102 range. I think ultimately, if you get it down there, you want to step in uh, and buy a JPM. This is still a long-term bull market, and we just don't think that's over yet. I think Chris comes over on a day like today. I mean, yeah. did you see that Coliseum? Oh, I mean, I think we need Chris's help here. He's Italian, Come on too. Over, Chris. Where is that an Ryan ETN? will bring the chair in. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, that'll. Yeah. <laughs> it did. Welcome. Good to see you. So financials are worth a buy here. 
How about technology and more specifically the FANG stocks? We saw some very interesting action today, session. Netflix hitting an all-time high. We sure. had Square and Twitter managing to buck the trend. Chips were doing pretty well. I think what's really unique about 2018, every single consensus trade has been challenged at some point, right? They hit FANG a few months ago, and then they hit industrials. Now they're hitting banks. A lot of those have, have responded and have come back. I mean, new highs basically for Apple, new highs for Netflix. Amazon is right there. Microsoft acts fantastic. So I just think it's early to say that this bull market is over when there's still stocks to buy. So, Chris, when I look at the chart of the S&P, you, you, you get yeah. back to the futures. I, I look at the cash. Sure. I see February, March, and then that sell-off in March down 8%. It mirrors sort of what we're doing at this point in the cash. I would think that at the very least, the 200-day test has to be coming. Do you think that holds this time? We've been banging around on the bottom, as you pointed out. Do you think it breaks this time? Yeah, I do. And I think sentiment, I think one of the ironies is that even though the market's higher today, sentiment is worse than it was at the 25, 33 lows on February 6th. So the wall of worry has gotten taller. And we could say it's flattening yield curve or uh, what's going on abroad. But I think sentiment is worse today than it was at those February lows. That tells us we don't want to be too bearish here. I think a lot of the worst part of this corrective phase is probably behind us. What is the level that you're watching right now? What level do we need to hold? Yeah, I think that 50-day at 26.75, maybe okay. just underneath there, 26.50 is an area this market defends. I thought it was interesting today for a bad day. Volume really wasn't that extreme aside from the bank. So it doesn't seem like there's a lot of downside force uh, with this market right we here. We've breached 26.75. What's the next stop? 26.50 maybe worst okay. case. I think that's as bad as we do. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Chris Verone, Strategus. What did you do today, Tim? Um, I, actually, I kind of sat tight. I, I think the market's reaction today was a little extreme. I mean, look at emerging markets that were down almost 2.4%. Talk about a place where you're making lower lows. I think sentiment actually is really deteriorating with every tick higher in the dollar. Um, and, and I'll be clear, because I, I thought that the dollar, and I, I still will say, if Europe remains contained, I think the dollar is contained. But this is the big deal. If you have these differentials between the perception of how the Fed is going to act and the ECB, which now looks like they can do nothing, um, I think the dollar can go higher. That will be very, very negative for emerging markets, and, and I think they could go lower. But having said that, a day like today, I think, was an overreaction. I'm not sure you needed to trade today. Okay. You know, who, Chris Run did a great job. Oh, but as who is, always. Who is, who is at the, just the pinnacle? Carter Braxton Orr. On Thursday, he did a whole chart about the XLF. Remember, I talked about potential double top mm. in the XLF, and Dan got mad at me because he said, Carter's got those Dan charts. Dan always gets mad at you. Dan always. That doesn't recently, help me remember been, that moment. But anyway, <laughs> With that said, so now you will start hearing technicians talk about a potential for a real double top in the XLF. Go back and look what happened to the XLF back in 08. Fell off a cliff. Not suggesting that's going to happen. But you're going to start to hear some of that rhetoric. With that said, Micron up today. Monster yeah. move. One has to ask oneself, where would it have been but for the move in the broader market? Coming up, Salesforce is soaring to all-time highs after hours. CEO Mark Benioff speaking to our own Jim Cramer moments ago. We will tell you what he said next. Plus, Starbucks in the middle of its nationwide shutdown for racial bias, anti-racial bias training. But could its new policies brew up more problems for the stock? We've got those details. And later, stocks are slumping, bonds are surging, and Bitcoin near one-month lows. Is that all a coincidence? One of the largest VIX brokers says it is not. He will tell us why. We are live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Salesforce. The stock soaring to an all-time high after hours. And our own Jim Cramer spoke to CEO Mark Benioff about the quarter moments ago. Take a listen.
Jim, we had a fantastic quarter, and we are raising our guidance to $13.125 billion for this year, up from $10.5 billion last year. And you can see we are fast-tracking to $20 billion. That's crystal clear. We can really see what's happening in the market today as a huge investment uh, by our customers. The economy is really ripping. And you can see that customers are going through this massive digital transformation. And every digital transformation starts and ends with the customer. What do you make the move of the move grasso and so the valuation? When you have, when you have these uh, all-time highs, you, you, people think you don't, you shouldn't chase them on that day. Obviously, there's a three-day rule, so you want to wait a couple of days, see where this thing levels off, look for the low, and then buy it below that. But it's up 28 percent, 24 percent year to date. Who do you compare it to? SAP down 2 percent, Oracle down 2 percent. I'm not even sure you compare it there. But you go to Workday, Workday's up 28 percent. So they're definitely in the sweet spot. Give it a couple of days, but still worth buying even at these lofty levels. Was this a summer sizzler stock of you yours on Friday? You were holding the long boards. We were what? Holding? holding, holding the boards. <laughs> yeah, and in the Salesforce. Yes, Salesforce. Well, I mean, this has been across. You're true. This has been across the desk. Yes. We've talked about this, and people will knock Salesforce on valuation, but then you look at this and see operating margins up 17 percent. The street was looking for 15 percent. How do you argue with these quarters? They constantly do better each quarter. So I understand what Steve is saying. I don't think you have to rush in, but I think you put this away and just sort of bide your time. This is Amazon-like, in my opinion, mm. in terms of their domination. But in terms of software, I mean, Chris Verone mentioned Microsoft. Microsoft right. He said it was, what was his word, acting tremendously, something like that. Right. But relative to this, I mean, not so. Yeah. This is extraordinary. I mean, this kind of growth this far along in the story is, it's really kind of mind-boggling. I know it's expensive, agree with what you guys are saying, but if you just keep beating and beating like this, you deserve to be expensive. Yeah, I mean, I think people are concerned about this mule acquisition. There wasn't a real competitive other buyer out there. People have looked at a lot the of the, soft. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, and ultimately, the dynamics here for this company are, I think you have to judge them how these acquisitions prove rather than their purchase price. I have not been a huge fan of the stock based upon valuation. So as much as I'd like to say, I've been raging, raging bull on it. I, I do think the 20s free cash flow growth is something that's extraordinary. The, the sheer scale and size that these guys have give them a reason to trade at a premium. All right, and of course, you can catch Jim's full interview with Mark Benioff tonight on Mad Money, and all that starts at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, today's sell-off got you worried the bull might be over. Well, Guy Dami says there are three telltale signs that will signal the end of the bull market. We'll find out what they are later this hour. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. I thought you were dead. No, just canceled by ABC. And the move could add to a list of growing headaches for the mouse house. We'll explain. Plus, as global turmoil grips the market, one thing could be the leading indicator on where stocks are going next. What is a Bitcoin? And we'll tell you why it has one VIX trader very nervous when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. There is an interesting trend appearing in the market in the last few months that has some market watchers believing Bitcoin could actually be a leading indicator for stocks. And if that proves true, the cryptocurrency could actually be sending a warning about the market. Dom Chu is breaking it down from the newsroom. Dom. That's right, Melissa. On a day when the VIX was trading at its highest levels in over a month and bonds saw a 
big breakout of sorts. Some are looking to Bitcoin as a possible indicator for where stocks are maybe heading next. Now, if you look at this chart, you can maybe make the case that the two are somewhat correlated. I mean, in December, for example, when Bitcoin topped out, the S&P followed suit just a few weeks later. Since then, it looks as though the cryptocurrency has preceded each rally and then drop in the marketplace as well. So is Bitcoin signaling worse times ahead for the broader market? The short answer is nobody really knows, but it's perhaps something that some traders may be looking at. Not a commentary on the legitimacy or investability or tradability of the cryptocurrency, but rather another possible tea leaf as some market participants look towards the, the divining of the future direction of markets. Depending on which particular price you use, Bitcoin prices are quoted in U.S. dollars, and if they are, they're down roughly 44% since the end of 2017, from around a level of 13,400 and change to just around a 7,500 mark like we see now. There's just way too little robust trading data and participation in the crypto markets over the last few years to really tell. At the same time, there are those out there who make the case that things like Bitcoin and other digital currencies represent alternatives to traditional assets. Would they catch some kind of a safety bid in the event things get more dicey in global stock and bond markets? Of course, all of these arguments come at a time when the very legitimacy of crypto is still very much on the front burner of conversations. Melissa, back over to you. All right. Thank you very much, Dom Chu. So you guys were both shaking yes. your heads when Dom well, had been talking about whether or not this would be a flight to safety right. trade, right. a la gold <laughs> or bonds. Gold. Right. right. I mean, yeah. if you look at the treasuries, look at the 10, you know, that is an enormous move we had today. I don't think that or Bitcoin, you could go into one of those two as a, you know, flight to safety. I'm very, very skeptical of that. But in terms of the charts. Leading indicator. Let's talk about that. Because what that usually means is, first of all, there's a fundamental correlation. Often you hear about leading indicators as it relates to the economy. So economists would look at confidence indicators. They would look at uh, measures of spending. They would look at things that are going to ultimately lead to an economic uh, reality. Uh, we're not seeing that. Obviously, when you talk about Bitcoin, market sentiment, here's what I would agree with. Back in December, when we started to see Bitcoin sell off, that to me was the early signs of a blow off top in terms of momentum where we got to uh, Jan 22nd markets. Yeah. I think in terms of positioning and positioning towards risk. So I think it's exactly the opposite. I think if markets were tanking here, yes, I think there's a baseline of core investors in crypto. Um, but you can't tell me people would be running for the safe haven of a cryptocurrency here. All right. Well, our next guest says Bitcoin could be the next fear gauge. And as of one of the largest VIX brokers at the CBOE, you would know a bit about fear. Brian Sutlin is the president of Equity Armor Investments. We simply call him the fear merchant. Others call him Brian. Good to see you, Brian. <laughs> yes. How you doing, Melissa? So are, so are you increasingly looking at Bitcoin as an indicator? I, I am, Melissa. And this is really interesting because the reason why you look at it, when you think about it, Bitcoin is a way for investors to basically move their money off the balance sheets of banks and into their own wallet, essentially storing their money under their pillow in the form of virtual currency. And to do that, that why would you do that? Basically, you're worried that banks are going to have some sort of credit risk. And so as credit risk increases, we get more volatility in the market. And when you take a look at it, here's why I'm talking about this credit risk. When you look at the VIX and you determine the VIX maybe is a measure of volatility and fear in the market and a fear of credit, if you want to know where the VIX is going in the next 30 days, look at what Bitcoin did 30 days ago in an investment. If you took $1,000 30 days ago in Bitcoin, it is telling you where the VIX is going. When we overlay the two together, there is huge correlation right now between VIX and Bitcoin 30 days ago, 30 trading days ago. And I think that is starting to measure out credit risk in the market. That's what cryptocurrency is becoming. It's becoming a way to 
sort of de-risk yourself from credit risk in the banking industry. And it makes a lot of sense that you would take your money off those balance sheets into a cryptocurrency. But Brian, the, it's Steve Grasso. Uh, yeah. Whether you look backwards and see how small that window is when you compare it to the VIX and you say, okay, Bitcoin could be the new VIX. When you look at the horizon that we have to pick from, can't you see anything? Doesn't every, if all you have is a hammer, doesn't everything look like a nail? You know, is there really a correlation? Is there real? Is this really the new VIX or is the VIX really just slow to react being as though we had a, tr a traumatic year with VIX volatility in 2018? I think it's a great question. Is there enough data to really support that, I think, is what you're asking. And when I look at it, over the last six months, that data is supporting that Bitcoin is sort of becoming the new VIX and sort of getting ahead of credit risk in the banking industry. And I think when you look back at it, take a look at, at Cyprus and some of the European problems that happened in 2010, 2011. There was also at that time a lot of correlation between VIX and volatility that occurred 30 days later, trading days later, and Bitcoin. So there is a little bit more data than the last six months. And like I said, I think it makes sense that this is starting to occur, that this is a way for institutions or millions of individual investors to synthetically store their money under their pillow, take your money away off the bank's balance sheet. There's a reason why the banks and some of the big names and some of the big owners of in the banking industry are all out talking about against Bitcoin, against cryptocurrencies, because they realize this is going to be an alternative way of storing your money and protecting against fear and volatility in the market. So I think this correlation continues beyond just the last six months of data. I think you'll start to see this continually mature going forward over the next year or two. Brent, let me ask you something. So looking at the VIX today at 17 and change, if what's happening in the world is another potential banking crisis, a la what we saw in 10,011 or 12, the VIX was much, much higher then. How does that fit into what you're saying about Bitcoin? Or do you think that this VIX is, is today is saying, you know what, this isn't a banking crisis. This is a little blip. Right, right. Well, I think that's a great question. If you look at Bitcoin where it was 30 days ago, selling off from 10,000 now down to 7,500, what that basically is telling me over the next 30 days, all this volatility today may carry on for the next week or two, but then subside. Because let's be honest here, you know, Italy needs the EU. Unlike Great Britain and them exiting the EU, they could sustain on their own. Somewhere with the problems that you're seeing in Italy within that government, I think they'll still need to be in the EU. I think those problems will start to resolve itself. Look at the Italian bonds are still trading at 1.75%. There's not you know, the credit risk doesn't seem to be huge there. So I think today is a one-day volatility event, just like we had a spike in Bitcoin back up to 10000 temporarily a month ago. I think some of this will subside. This will probably make for a good buying opportunity for <laughs> stocks headed forward over the next 30 days. All right, Brian, good to see you. Thank you. Thanks, Brian Melissa. Sutland, joining us from Chicago. Guy, what do you make of all the this? The fear merchants. The yes. merchant of fear. Yes. It's interesting. A lot of Ita merchant of merchant of Venice. Venice. By oh, the, by Italian Remember that? Uh, what do Very I make of all times. this? I'm yes. not certain. I, I love correlations. I get it all. But I'm not going to start to put Bitcoin in sort of the volatility index thing just right yet, at least in my opinion. I understand that the charts work now. Um, I, I got to give it some more time to see well, if it works. Haven't we also been talking for the last two, three months about how we're waiting for the institutional players to really get into this market and that, right. will, and that they will be. But, but to say that they are able to pr provide any backstop to volatility right now or that this would be a place where these guys would step in, they're not even in. So, no, I, I don't think it's, it's a safe haven in any way.
All right. For more options action, you can check out the full show Fridays, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, it was a sea of red for the markets today as volatility surges today. Sell off another sign that the bull market is coming to an end. Guy Adami's got three clues. He will break it down. Plus, Disney getting hit with a one-two punch today after its new Star Wars installment flopped at the box office. And the media giant canceled its hit sitcom Roseanne after her racist Twitter rant. We'll bring you the very latest. Much more Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Disney shares falling more than 2% today as drama rocks the mouse house. Julia Borson's in Rancho Palos Verdes with the details. Hi, Julia. Melissa, Disney's ABC canceling Roseanne Barr's show after she tweeted offensive and racist comments about President Obama advisor Valerie Jarrett. ABC Entertainment President Channing Dungy saying, quote, Roseanne's Twitter statement is abhorrent, repugnant, and inconsistent with our values, and we have decided to cancel her show. Disney CEO Bob Iger telling CNBC that the decision was made quickly, tweeting, quote, there was only one thing to do, and that was the right thing. Now, canceling the show will have financial implications for Disney and will put dozens of people out of work. It was the number three rated show of the season with an average of more than 18 million people watching, and it was scheduled to return for another 13 episodes. Now, this comes as Solo from Disney's Lucasfilm Studio underperformed box office expectations this past weekend. It was a perfect storm of timing, competition, and perhaps Star Wars fatigue. The film bringing in $103 million over four days under already lowered expectations. Internationally, it brought in $65 million. That total global take is about half of what Rogue One brought in in its December 2016 debut. But perhaps the biggest factor in Solo's performance is the fact that it's been just five months since the last Star Wars film. It's also the first of these films to be released in this summer, and this summer is particularly crowded. Solo going up against Marvel's Avengers Infinity War, as well as Fox's Deadpool sequel. FBR's Barton Crockett projecting that, quote, Solo will be close to break even over its life versus the $400 million profit we had assumed, which is about a 2% headwind into Disney's estimates this year. So, Melissa, it'll be really interesting to see how the film holds up and performs in the upcoming weeks. Yep. Back over to you. Julia, thank you. Julia Borston <laughs> and Rancho Palo Verdes. Um, Karen? Yeah. I don't think Disney was oversold at all on this. Uh, you know, I think that, so two very big bad things, right? Maybe this, the franchise isn't worth what we thought, and then the Roseanne cancellation. But also, Disney's still got a number of headwinds. I mean, think about the Fox situation, very, very much up in the air. Even if they're able to buy it, they're going to have to pay more, right? And it's unclear, actually, how, if they're going to do that with cash, or if they're going to do that with stock. I'm I, I not even sure which is best. In addition, you have ESPN that, you know, still has very big headwinds facing it. So I don't think this is a spot to jump in and go after Disney here at all. There's a lot to still shake out here. It seems like there are plenty of reasons to not own Disney. Well, I mean, if, right Rose, if, if, if we're ca the fate of Disney rests rest on Roseanne's, Roseanne's hands or broad shoulders, then I think they have bigger problems. Than and so they I are think broad. Well, it wouldn't, but it would have finished the TV season as a number three rated all, all TV sitcom. I'm not trying right? to be I mean, it's not My point is they got, they got bigger fish to fry than Roseanne. But I will say this. The Star Wars stuff, I mean, five months later, to me, it's a little quick. Having never seen one before, I'm not rushing out to see Han Solo or Hans, any, Hans Christian Andersen, for that matter. But, I'll, but one and more thing. Skates. ESPN got a lifeline, in my opinion, with this legalized gambling thing. I think it's a huge boon for ESPN. Now, will it manifest itself in the stock price over the next couple of months? Probably not. But I think this was a lifeline they needed. I agree with Karen, though. If they ever have to overpay for Fox, 
that's a problem. I, I've been long in the past the stock. I've made money off of this stock. I think it's technically <laughs> challenged. I think it's fundamentally challenged. I don't care what the parks are making. When I look at this on the chart, it looks like it wants to revisit middle 90s to low 90s. And I'm not going to say it's all she wrote for Disney, but there's a lot of growthy other names that rhyme with Netflix mm -hmm. that are competition <laughs> for this name right now. If you can get over valuation, Netflix, which is a good. problem. Which I, is a pro good one, Grasso. Right? I mean, that was good. Like, I, I think you guys are crazy if you think Disney's got issues with their studio. I mean, the studio has been crushing it. Black Panther. And I, by the way, I put together yeah. a Millennial Falcon. Avengers. With, Lego thing yesterday with my four-year-old who's just getting into this stuff, but I, like I, have never seen an entire Star Good Wars. Thing. It was either. a three-day weekend, um, but yeah, no, we, we were. It was a rainy one too. We really got down to all kinds of. But the bottom line here is Disney, to me, should not be treated in the same way as some of these other media companies because of their consumer products business, because of their theme parks business, which I think are actually really clicking along. Ninety-two, ninety-three on Disney is a level that I think you have to watch it. I don't think you need to jump in here now, as Karen said. But to say that these guys, because Star Wars is failing, that studio is so much stronger than any competitor, I, that's not reason to be worried. Yeah, but they make a ton of money, right? They yeah. do make a ton of money. The problem is they cost them a ton of money to make a ton of money, and Netflix is curating their but own. But they spend a ton own. of money for that growth. Right? Well, Netflix is not spending a ton of money. They are. They're they spending, are spending, they're not, spending a ton of money. Spending they're they're, they're, they're not even them. making money yet. You match them up. They used to buy others, other people's content. Now they're curating their own for pennies on the dollar where other people are do, charging. Do you think that, that Netflix is in any way encroaching upon Disney's dominance of the content? No, I think it's, it's not a even close. I, I don't mean to be glib, a, a word of guys, but it's up 82%. Disney's down 7%. So that whole idea I'm buying value that, but that you're talking you. But let's, let's be careful. Yeah, we're talking stuff. Here's the that's conversation we're having, though, Steve. We're talking about content. We're not talking about. I understand no, I'm why Netflix is out. I'm not talking being... about Disney's content, didn't we? And you started talking about how much they're spending on great content. I'm not sure how great it is. It's been validated. They spent a lot of money. They've got a great algo. They've got great software that tell them what their users want them to have. But I mean, I think bottom line is to assume that that Disney is anywhere near Netflix in terms of comp of, of, of content or competition. There, I'm, I'm specifically talking about performance in the stock. If you had invested in Netflix, I don't mean you, Tim Seymour, I'm saying the, the viewer at home, had you invested, you're up 82% year to date versus being down 7%. So we could talk circles around it, but 82% well, is years the, and years the, of performance the, the, that you bottom, can't make up for. Right, but we're talking about Disney, we're talking about their studio, we're talking about all the things that I don't think they have to worry about. And if anything, I think once they start to pull Marvel, once they get fully over the top, by the way, don't think that Comcast isn't looking at Hulu um, to now own a controlling stake and make that be another competitor for Netflix. So we're assuming that no one's going to come after Netflix. And in fact, Netflix has been the only being Netflix for the last 20 you know, whatever. In my opinion, years. the only, I think that's only candidate that goes against Netflix is Amazon, Amazon Prime. That's where you're going to see the competition. You're not going to see it in Disney. I think we're looking at linear versus digital versus stream. Two different games. May I ask him a question? Yes, you may. What is right this here. Millennium Falcon? What is that yes. thing? Is that it's something? That's a ship. That's it's the original. Ship. Like on the water ship? It's a ship. <laughs> what was that noise? <laughs> what was that? What was that? Was oh, that's that little that's, robot. That's that, that's that hairy guy. And when does Drew Barrymore, when, what episode is Drew Barrymore in? In the Star Wars trilogy. You mean what are you e. talking about? Oh, she was E.T. It's a totally different <laughs> space genre movie. Sort of commercial. Yeah, I mean, little rascals for you. <laughs> Still ahead, it was a brutal day for the markets with the Dow falling nearly 400 points. So, how can you tell the bull market might be running out of steam? Guy Dami's got three signs to look for. Plus, Starbucks closing 8,000 stores this afternoon for racial bias training. CNBC's Kate Rogers is outside of a Starbucks store in New Jersey. Hi, Kate.
time, Melissa. That's right. Training still going on inside this company-owned location. We'll have all the details coming up after the break on Fast Money. Welcome back to Fast Money. Starbucks closing a number of stores across the U.S. for racial bias training today. Let's get to Kate Rogers back in Englewood, New Jersey, where one of the sessions is taking place as we speak. Kate. Hi, Melissa. That's right. Starbucks closing some 8,000 of its company-owned locations, just like the store you see here behind me at about 2 o'clock local time today for racial bias training set to reach 175,000 or so of its U.S. partners, as it calls them, or employees. Now, Starbucks pointed out the training wasn't mandatory. It was for people who wanted to make Starbucks a more welcoming and inclusive uh, space. They also circulated some toolkits for stores that were going to be participating. They wanted the partners to work in small group sessions together, and they also saw video messages from Starbucks founder and chairman Howard Schultz, as well as some of their uh, partners talking about their own experiences with bias. Take a look. On a personal level, I want to ask you that together we do everything we can to build that third place in your store. When I first started working there, I had to deal with difficult homeless customers all the time. I found someone in the restroom shooting up. Immediately, I shut down, I froze. The company also reiterated and updated its policy on bathroom usage after the incident in Philadelphia that got this all started, saying that as soon as you enter a Starbucks property, whether you're inside or you're on the patio like the people you see here behind me, you are a Starbucks customer and you don't need to make a purchase in order to use the bathroom. They then got some backlash and had to come out and say you can't use, obviously, drugs or be sleeping in the store. They don't want any of that. Um, and if that does happen, there are actions that their employees can and should be taking. Um, but once again, affirming once you enter the property, you are a customer. You don't necessarily need to make that purchase to use the restroom. And we should mention, too, that in the wake of this training today, the stock did close down just slightly in the red. Melissa, back over to you. And Kate, it is it was not mandatory, correct? So it was voluntary training. That's right. I asked Starbucks if this was That's mandatory, right. and they said no. This was for people who really wanted to help make Starbucks a more inclusive space. We talked to some of the partners inside this store today, and they were very gung-ho and excited to participate in the training, and uh, it looked like a lot of them were showing up to do that. So, All right, Kate, thank you. Kate Rogers outside that Starbucks there. So did Starbucks do the right thing here? Did they respond adequately? Is this reopening up this whole issue? And will the bathroom policy actually backfire? What do you think? I think they did the right thing. They, yeah, yes, I think they did the right thing. But in, in our world here, what does it mean necessarily for the share? I, I don't necessarily think it means anything for the share price. My biggest concern with Starbucks is do they have the earnings growth that justifies trading at 21 times next year's numbers? If you believe their growth in China is going to double by 2022, then the answer is probably yes. But this is a very important issue, but I don't think it has any ramifications whatsoever for the stock. North American sales have been slowing. I mean, that is really the issue here. Yeah, and they've, they've cut back in Tijuana. They've closed some of those stores. I think they've actually tightened their focus. I, I, you know, look, I think Howard Schultz should get a lot of credit for being a CEO that's socially minded and is really thinking about the, the perception of his business on multiple levels, cares about his employees. That's, you know, it's very clear that people like working there. They get a lot of young kids who could get other jobs. Mm -hmm. um, what did it do today? It was largely flat. What is the company? It's probably, uh, you know, on the upper end of a valuation range that it's struggled at for two years. I think they have multiple sales channels. I think this is one of the great brands in the world, and I think this is part of cementing that brand. Is it still one of the great brands of the world? And do you, I mean, I, as an investor, if you were invested in Starbucks, right? do you want to hear the chairman saying the bathrooms are open for everybody? Anybody who can walk in can use the bathroom. I'm not saying that that's 
right or wrong. Yeah, no, that's a I lot mean, of that's a lot of work for the employees to do. It's a lot and of work. It's right. You didn't have then, to say that. And right. they could be alienating part of their customer base exactly. who doesn't want to have that. I, I get that. It's a very tricky line. I mean, I appreciate him trying to do that. He is the chairman, as you said, not the CEO. But he, it's it's a very tricky line. It's interesting. Others don't seem to be following that. Maybe they just figure, let's watch. Let's just see right. how it works out for Starbucks, and then we'll see if we need to do the same thing. So it's a yeah. risk. Yeah. I think coffee is dead money at this point. If you look at both of them are down, Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks are both down right around 1% year-to-date. They're not seen as growthy. So if that international growth kicks up, eclipses this story, maybe you could see it going forward. But right now, I'd stay out of both of them. You're an investor in McDonald's as well. Yeah. Why isn't this an issue for McDonald's? Why, did, why doesn't McDonald's have to say, everybody can come in and use a bathroom? Because I, I don't think that they've had a couple of these high-profile outfits. I also think that McDonald's, although if you look at a fair amount of the McDonald's, you may see in an urban area where there's a greater con uh, predominance of, of homeless folks, you're going to see it being a place where they hang out. It's what happens at Starbucks. Um, I don't think that Steve Easterbrook has had to go out there and talk about this. In fact, I think McDonald's is trading at a premium multiple because they're doing things in terms of their strategy that give people the sense that this company is actually um, growing faster. Um, right. and, and I think that's, you know, but... How, I just say this. He didn't just wake up today and started acting socially minded. Starbucks has been doing this for, for since they came in. And As a friend just texted me, race together. Remember those race together cups yep. in 2000? They've always been out They've there when it comes to political issues, when it comes to social yeah. issues. And is, but is that what you want a company you're investing in? I think in at a coffee do. shop more than a burger mm -hmm. place, yeah. People hang out there. It's a home. It's a community. I think that's what goes on there. It works until it doesn't work. It right? does, but if that is coincident with being that kind of founder who has that kind of visionary, right. then maybe you can't separate the separate two. The two. Right. Well, stock's getting slammed today, so how do you know if this sell-off is the start of something worse? Sky Diamond's got three signs that a bull market has changed. He will break that down. We're live at the NASDAQ Great. market site in Times Square. We've got much more fast right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. It was a sea of red for the markets today as the Dow fell nearly 400 points. So is today's sell-off just another sign that we're beginning, we're seeing the beginning of the end to this bull market? Guy Dami's over the plasma with a little segment we like to call The More You Know. Guy. Lovely. It's a great piano intro. I mean, I love that. And we're not suggesting we're at the beginning of something. And I know the market was down big today. Not necessarily why we're doing it, but it's a good time to look at things. So these are my signs that things are changing. First one. Stocks no longer rally on good news. Sort of makes sense. For the last seven or eight years, stocks not only rallied on good news, they rallied on bad news. But for the last couple months, you've had some good news in a lot of these names, specifically banks, and you're not seeing the commensurate rally, something to be concerned about. Investors aren't buying dips. How many times have you heard that maddening phrase, buy the dips and sell the rips? It makes me crazy. But you know what? Now we seem to be more in an environment where people are more apt to sell on rallies than they are to buy on dips. Seeing that again today. Last one. This Steve can speak to this. Divergence in market breadth. On up days, are you seeing outperformers? Are you seeing advancers two to one, three to one over decliners? Not anymore. On the down days, though, you're seeing decliners over advancers, sometimes three or four to one. That's something you absolutely have to watch. And of course, we have a chart for you. Apropos of absolutely nothing, but I'll put it up <laughs> regardless. Over the last since January, you see we continue to make what appears to be, and I'm going to draw, I'm going to hopefully not totally screw this up, continue to see a series wow. of nice, nice, done. right? Very yeah. selective. Lower nice highs group. and not necessarily lower lows yet, but if we take out these levels in here, 
sort of that 2580 level that Steve Grasso has talked about now for months, then things get dicey. Back to you, Mel. So Russell's got a question. Oh, you got a question. Sorry. When you look, it's, it's to the tail point of that on the technical basis. When you look at your, your pinnacle, Carter Worth, he likes to look at the 150-day moving average, the smoothing mechanism, or the 20-day moving average, the momentum indicator. Do you have a favorite moving average Two, that you look I think, personally, that's a great question. I'm sort of the 200-day moving average. I think things get really interesting. What was that? I heard somebody say, huh, huh, huh. I think things get interesting when the 200-day moving average is breached either on the upside or the downside. And when that comes into play, then we can talk. But I don't think that's coming into play quite yet. Something to watch for, though. Thanks for that, Guy. <laughs> Up next, final trades. Final trade time. Let's go around the horn, Tim. Yeah, I think J.P. Morgan, as the best of the banks, was oversold today, and I think you can own this one. Chairwoman. Yes, my one bright spot today. Dory and LPG received a takeover uh, offer. I think that consolidation in, is, in this industry is a must. I think there's more to come. I bought some today. I owned a lot going into today. Brasso. Tesla, it's a buy. I'm still long for all the reasons that Guy just stated up at that plasma, right. teleprompter, not teleprompter, plasma, yeah. reverse them, and that's the reason why Tesla's a buy. Okay. Interesting. We're going to watch that again. Yeah. I know. We're going to rewind, rewind the DVR. Dorian's was a, a big haunt back in the 80s. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Infamous. Infamous. Infamous, yeah. Still yeah. is, apparently, I have in my ear, still ah. is. Where does Seaberg work? Dallas, sure he does. And last week they put an $18 price target on AMD. All right. I'm Melissa Lee. Thanks for watching. Be back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.